Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. Thank you for bringing the church into your living room, your dining room. Uh, For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, regardless of where you are, we're just so glad that you're here. You've chosen to spend uh, part of your morning with us, and if we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie, and it's my joy and privilege to be one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Also, it's a great privilege to open up God's Word, Um, and as we've been singing and just hearing already in our time together, The reality is like we are people desperately in need of good news and the church is in the good news business and so whatever you carried in here this morning, all week you've been bombarded with lots of things that if we're honest can just feel like bad news, more bad news, more bad news and the opportunity we have as the church is to come in and let's remember the better story, the truer story, the thing that actually ultimately matters and defines our reality is Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and what he's accomplished. And to help us do that, we've been spending time in the great book of John in this series called Come and See. And so we continue that uh, today, this invitation to come and to see and experience what Christ would have for us to understand more fully like who he is and what he's accomplished. And so this morning, I want to invite you, you can either, if you got a Bible, you can turn there. You can also go to cplife.church and turn to the end of John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. And so I'd encourage you to make use of the message notes to be able to follow along. But as you're turning there, I need to do about a 60-second sort of caveat explanation uh, of sorts, all right? Um, Don't set your timer because I've never been known to keep things in the right amount of time. But in general, 60 seconds here. You might see in the Bible, um, if depending on your translation, that there is a little note by this passage. There's some bracketing that, that's taking place. And basically what it is communicating is, is saying this. And so we don't want to skip over this. We want to be, hey, it's there. You'd probably see it. It makes a note that in the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Holy Scriptures, particularly the book of John, in the earliest ones we have, this account that we're about to read is not included in there. Now, at some point it got put in, and so those that translate it, the scholars, will make a note just to say, hey, it just isn't in the earliest ones. And so the reason, though, that we are making our way through it, we're not skipping over it, is is a couple things. For one, I believe it has all the markings of an eyewitness account. I believe that it is something that has historically happened, and there's nothing in here that is, it's not some obscure passage that we're like building an entire theology on out of just this one section. It is so true to what we know about God, what we know about Jesus, what we know about his disposition toward us, that it only reinforces the message of the good news of the gospel. And so we're going to spend some time in it. But it did want to give that sort of caveat. If you're seeing in your scriptures, like, what does that actually mean? There's far more that we could get into, um, but it would bore you probably to no end. All right, so let's just, we'll, 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 move, we'll move on. But let me go ahead and read this text. And so picking up at the end of chapter seven and then through the first 11 verses. So at the end of chapter seven, we read, then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And now here's our account. It's referred to as an adulterous woman that is forgiven. At dawn, he, that's Jesus, he went to the temple again and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. At this point, it says Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, 
The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again, and he continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. So what I want to look at this morning, and to help us sort of understand this passage and what it has to do with your life and my life, is it ties directly into what we've titled this series, like come and see and understand who Jesus is, because there can be misconceptions of him. So maybe a way to, to frame this as we get going, to ask a question, is like when you think about Jesus, when you think about who God is, when you think about those kind of big questions, like how do you actually view Jesus? And so we're seeing in our study of the book of John that there are many that are seeing him as kind, empathetic, gracious, merciful. He's talking to the outcasts. He's talking to those that don't fit in. He's doing miracles. Like he just seems to be this bleeding heart for humanity, all right? And so that might be how you picture him, maybe how you've known him. There's other, maybe when you picture God, when you picture Jesus, you have this view though, like, hey, I've read some of the book of Revelation, and I see that there's this picture of Jesus. Yes, he's gentle and lowly, and he's he's with the children. And then I also see this picture of him, like he's riding in on a a white horse, and he's he's got like fire coming out of his eyes, and he's got a sword, and he's got a tattoo on his thigh, and like it's all real, like you go read that. Like maybe you picture him as the judge that is spoken of, and it's like how do we hold those things? Like which one is it? You gotta pick. In fact, you don't though. Like that's sort of what I would put before you, like this false dichotomy. And what this passage is going to show us is we don't have to pick between, all right, either the God who pursues justice and righteousness and holiness or the God who goes the route of grace and mercy and compassion and love. In fact, what we're seeing here is that it's God's love that actually leads to justice or right ordering. It's his pursuit of a right ordering that leads him to, to love and compassion and grace and mercy. In fact, in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus, hear the, these words. And so just, I want this to be read like over all of us this morning, just as this invitation with whatever it is that we've carried in here this morning. He says this, all right, there's this description of Jesus. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. That image there, as you picture it, he will not break a bruised reed. Do you feel broken, battered, beaten up, staggering in. He will not crush you. He will not forsake you. He is with you. That picture of a, of a smoldering wick, of like this lamp, it's about to go out. If there's just one more little gust of wind, like it's gonna be gone. He's like, I'm protecting, I am shielding, I am there. And yet all of this is tied to this bigger story until he has led justice to victory, that God is pursuing a right ordering of the world. And the way he is accomplishing that is through grace and mercy. And so what I want to look at together this morning is start out by setting this passage within what I would say is there's a controversy of grace. And maybe by that a way to think about it is there's an offense of grace. Like we are accomplished people. Like give us something to do, we're going to go out, we're going to set our minds to it, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Like that is the ethos, that is the that is the air we breathe, the water that we swim in. Like it's all around us. And yet, that is contrary to the message of the scriptures because it tells us over and over again, you can't do enough. 
you can't earn. You gotta stop pretending. You gotta be honest with your brokenness and your sin. And so it's offensive. That's part of the controversy of grace. Like, I don't, do I, do I have to admit that? Can I have a little bit of Jesus sprinkled in, but I'll kind of be on, on my own? And it's, you can't do that. It literally is a whole person, whole being submission to him and to his will. And so we're gonna see in this grace, though, and the way it sometimes gets misunderstood, I want us to see that there's grace for the religious. We'll see in the middle of this text, and at the end, there's grace for the rebellious. And regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, if you've been in church since you were in the womb, basically, until now, all right, there's grace for you. If you're somebody that's like, man, I've lived my life, I've basically been an expert in breaking all of the commandments, and there is grace for you, or wherever you fall in between. So this controversy of grace. And so there's this account that's told, we just read it a moment ago, and that Jesus is there, and he's in the temple, and it tells us all the people are coming. He's gathering a crowd. Jesus is highly skilled at doing this. The crowds cannot stay away from him. They begin to gather. He gets into the, you know, gets into the temple, and the way that they did it in that time is he sat down. That's how teachers would, would operate, all right? No standing on a stage with a headset microphone. He sat down, and the people gathered around, and he began to teach. And then it says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. And it tells us, and we'll look at this more in just a moment, but this is a trap. Like, they are trying to find a way to bring accusation against Jesus. We've seen this already in chapter 7. I think the reason this is placed here, this particular account, right here where it is, as we'll get into the rest of chapter 8 next week, is there's this constant tension now between Jesus and the religious authorities and how they misunderstand. They think the story is about them. They're living with a worldview of like, what do they do and how can they accomplish and how amazing are are they? And Jesus keeps disrupting that. And so they bring in, it says, they brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. And they pose a question to Jesus, like, hey, are, are we free to pick up the stones and stone her to death. And now that's not just a random thing. Like they didn't make that up on the spot. That wasn't them seeing like, hey, I wonder if we, we could do this. This ties to their understanding of the scripture. So let me read one of the passages where this is, comes from. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, it says this. If a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Similar accounts of the book of Deuteronomy, but that's what they're referring to in this particular moment. Now, right out of the gate, before we get into understanding like what the trap is, there should be a couple of things. And here's where we see Jesus's disposition. Again, his kindness, his grace, his wanting to rightly order things. There's a really big question that this should ask, like kind of right, right away. And the question is this, where's the dude? Right? Like, where's the man in this? Because Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says, yes, the woman should be brought in, but also it takes two. Like, where is he? What's going on here? So already, right out of the gate, we know something's off. Something's gone awry. There's something that's happening here that doesn't seem genuine. And then they bring her and they drop her in, like, kind of in the center for all the eyes to be on her. Like, imagine how disruptive this would be. And this is a limited analogy because I'm going to talk about, like, think about for a moment. Like, we're here, we're gathered for a, for a service, and then this woman is carried in by some, like, religious leaders in, in the town, and they bring her front and center. Now, the analogy breaks down because it would be Jesus up here, not me. You should want Jesus, not me. But anyway, like, it breaks down there. But imagine how disruptive that would be. It's like, oh, my goodness, like, what in the world is happening? 
it would have been like this tension. Like you could feel it. It's palpable. You could cut it with a knife. You're like, uh-oh, awkward. Like what is happening? Because it's not just Jesus and a couple of people. Like the crowds have gathered. This is a large gathering. There's lots of people. And this is intentional on the part of the religious leaders. They're like, oh, we're going to put Jesus in a spot where he has to pick. And so here's the trap that is set now. As we know, and as we'll see, and we're seeing this throughout the book of John, we're seeing it in all the accounts of Jesus, he's brilliant, he's way, he's gonna outsmart them, outwit them, outduel them, like you can't trap Jesus, all right, just in case you were wondering, but they think that they've got him. And so here's how we would talk about like the trap. Here's what is actually taking place. And it goes back to like, well, how do you view Jesus? So on the one hand, there's literally been hundreds and thousands of people that were gathering to hear Jesus. They're enamored with him, they're following him. Why? Because of his miracles, his grace, his compassion. He's interacting with people that normally wouldn't be interacted with. He's, he's healing people, he's restoring, he's repairing, he's loving. There, there are people that are, that are coming in and they're, you know, the religious leaders are all like, just have their world sort of rocked because they're like, who, who is he hanging out with? And Jesus would speak to them about, hey, I've not call, come to, to call the healthy, like I've come to, to call the sick and those that recognize that they're actually in need of a doctor. Like this is who he's spending time with. And so that whole group, if you can imagine, which is lots and lots of people, if Jesus is like, yep, that woman, she deserves death. Let's get the, pick up the stones and let's stone her to death. Leviticus, my favorite book of the Bible, like let's go for it. Like if he had responded that way, he would lose this whole group of people. They'd be like, what in the world? I thought he was about compassion and love and grace. Like, that's how they understood him. On the other hand, if he says, no, no, no way. Like, we need to love this woman. We need to care for her. We need to understand her story. We need to enter in, like, all, all of the, these things. And we are no way, we're not going to pick up stones. You can disregard that. He, in essence, would be saying, hey, Moses, the, the, his words, God's word that the people would have known, like, you can discard that. And that would have created a massive controversy as well. So they're trying to put them in one of two camps. Are you gracious and loving, or are you going to follow like holiness and righteousness and justice? And even as an aside, if he had said, let's pick up stones and stone her, they didn't have the authority to do that. They were under the rule and reign of the Romans, who were very serious. They, they put lots of people to death, but only by their own power and might and their permission that is granted. So if Jesus had even said, go ahead and do this, he would have gotten himself in trouble with the Romans too because like they're the only ones that carried out capital punishment, death, all of that. So they think that they've got him. Like he's got to choose, am I gracious and loving or am I full, like pursuing like righteousness and holiness and following the word of God? Which is it going to be? And as Jesus does it, he obliterates the categories. He blows it up and he's like, I want you to know like, I'm pursuing both, and it's possible. I'm gonna show you, even you religious leaders that dragged this woman here, that you did not care about her and her story. You didn't care enough to bring the guy along. Like She, to you, is somebody to be used as a pawn in your story, your pursuit of trying to trap me. You're not seeing her full of worth, value, and dignity. Like I'm not going to dignify that. I'm gonna dignify her, and yet, I'm also going to dignify you. Because you religious leaders, as wrong as you are in this, you're made in the image of God, full of worth, value, dignity, just like this woman. And I've got a word for you as well. We tend to know the story about the response at the end, and it's amazing, and we'll get to it. 
But what's happening here in the middle, I would put it to you this way, it's grace for the religious. It's grace for those people who think that they've got it all figured out. It's grace for those that are so full of just like the self-righteousness that they think everybody should want to be like us. Like we've got this on lockdown. We've got the truth. And let's look at how Jesus responds. So I'll read this again. This picks up the second part of verse six. It says, Jesus stooped down and he started writing on the ground with his finger. And when they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and he continued writing on the ground. And when they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. And only he was left with a woman in the center. So we're going to talk about in a moment Jesus' response. This phrase that he says to them and the response that happens. But first, the interesting detail, right? Get this picture, courtesy of Google Images, right? Jesus stooping down. He's writing on the ground. It's like, what is going on? Like, is he that unfocused? Does he have that much of ADD? Like, I don't know what's happening here. Is Jesus a doodler? You know, you, some of you are doodlers, right? Your sermon notes look like a picture when you're done, right? Like, I get it. I don't know if that's what, what Jesus is doing. Like, what in the world is happening there? Like, why is he doing this? And what is he writing, right? Is he drawing a picture? Is he writing out words? I, we don't actually know. I think there's, there, obviously, there's lots of speculation down through the centuries. One that I find I would put it in the realm of fairly compelling that I'll give to you, but at the end of the day, we just don't know. We certainly, I'm guessing he didn't do this. I don't think this is what he wrote in there, good vibes only. Maybe, but I'm guessing that's probably not the route that he went. So what might he have been writing? What are some of the things? Well, what I find really interesting is where this falls. If you remember last week, if you were here, you know that Jesus declared this invitation, like, come to me, all who are thirsty. He's declaring that he's the living water, that his grace is for everyone. And it's going to refresh you, renew you, restore you, all of that. Well, in Jeremiah 17, verse 13, it says these words, Lord, the hope of Israel, all who abandon you will be put to shame. All who turn away from me, and here's this interesting line, will be written in the dirt, for they have abandoned the Lord. And how is the Lord described? The fountain of living water. So there's been speculation down through the centuries that, that Jesus maybe had this verse in mind. Like he's writing out, they might have known the scriptures, like, oh, like there's, in essence, there's, uh, there's an accusation of sorts being levied against them. Like you're actually the ones that are abandoning. Forget the woman here in the middle. It's not about her sin and what she's done. Have you abandoned the fountain of living water? I think that's quite possible. I think one could make a case for that. At the end of the day, we don't know. But I appreciate the words of the, the author, and the, he's a uh, singer, mu musician by the name of Michael Card. And he wrote about this particular scene here, and he said it this way. He talks about us asking the wrong question. Like, we want to know what was written. And he's like, why don't we ask the bigger question of, like, why did Jesus do this? Again, it's a best guess, but I love the insight that he brings. So listen to his words. He says, to this day, we have not the slightest idea what it was Jesus twice scribbled in the sand. By and large, the commentators have asked the wrong questions. They ask what without ever realizing that the real question is why. It was not the content that mattered, but why he did it. Unexpected, irritating, creative. What Jesus did that morning created a space and time that allowed the angry mob first to cool down. 
then to hear his word, and finally to think about it, be convicted by it, and respond or not. Jesus' action created a frame around the silence, the kind of silence in which God speaks to the heart. And I love that perspective. And I think it's a perspective that all of us need, that even God would give us this time and this space to sort of frame this this morning. That it's not an accident that you're here and that I'm here and our particular stories and all that we're dealing with and to have this text in this moment and realize Jesus' love for those who think they've got it all figured out. He wants to give them some time and space, not to beat them down, but rather to get them to see you're missing it. You brought this woman here and put her in the center. You're trying to shame her. You don't even care really about her. You're ultimately trying to use her to trap me. And what if, Jesus is saying to them, what if you saw your brokenness? What if you saw that you could be placed front and center? What if you were the one that understood your in desperate need of grace? And so Jesus responds and he says this, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. The brilliance of Jesus is fully on display in this moment because on the one hand, he is fully upholding. He's like, does she deserve to die? Is her sin, has she actually sinned? He doesn't say, you know what? No, she hasn't, or she gets to define her reality or pursue her truth or do whatever feels good to her. Or who are you to judge? He doesn't say any of that. He realizes that she actually is guilty in the same way that you and I are guilty. Unless we think for a moment that what she's done, if you're like, well, that's not my story, and that's far worse, the scriptures tell us over and over again, if we've pursued anything but Jesus and finding our identity in him, we have committed a spiritual adultery. We have run after other lovers thinking that career or relationship or how well our children do or what school I get into or whatever would be the thing that would bring satisfaction. And Jesus calls us out and says, you've committed adultery. So there's like this level playing field here that they don't want to deal with. And if I'm honest, I don't want to deal with. And so when Jesus says this, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone. He's not saying there shouldn't be a pursuit of holiness and righteousness, but he's saying, would you examine for a moment your own heart? Would you examine your own disposition, your own failings? Now, I think it's important to stop here and maybe think about it this way, what Jesus is not saying. Because one could take this, particularly in our cultural moment, and say, yep, see, you are never allowed to point out sin in somebody else's life. You're never allowed to call people to repentance. You're never allowed to do that unless the only grounds you have for doing that is if you're perfect. So you can pick up the stone if you are perfect, but other than that, like you can't actually ever say anything. So let's just talk very practically for, for a moment about why that sort of thinking is nonsense. You couldn't do parenting if that was how it was, right? I mean, think about it for a moment. Like anytime you discipline your kid or you tell them you, you gotta do this, not, not this, the right thing, and they turn to you and like, are you perfect? And you answer honestly and say no, and they're like, cool, I can disregard everything that you say. Like, that would be absurd. Like we as fallen human beings do see things that are actually broken, actually wrong, and our call to pursue justice, to join Jesus in that, and a right ordering of things, is to call sin, sin. Like, that actually is a loving thing to do. Jesus is not skirting that. He's not going, oh, this woman, no, it's, it's no big deal. You just, you, you know, just do whatever you want to do. It's not what he's saying. 
But what he is getting at then is, hey, just think about it for a moment. Would you pause and would you consider before you pick up a stone, examine your heart? N.T. Wright in his commentary had just a helpful image, right? Put this up on the screen. Like, you see this, right? This guy looks a little angry. Um, there's the, the finger is being pointed, all right? It's very basic, but I thought this was at least helpful. When you do point a finger, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Like, you can't do it otherwise. And so even that, to stop and say, yes, there might be something to be pointed out. Was this woman caught in adultery? Yes. Where's the guy? He, was, he should be there as well. It's broken, it's messed up, all of it. And yet Jesus is saying, would you stop and examine your own heart for a moment? Because the brokenness here, what he's wanting them to see is, yes, she's guilty, but this is entrapment, there's hypocrisy here. This is not a a fair trial. I mean, you literally, the burden of proof was so severe. Like, don't read Leviticus and think for a moment, man, they must have killed people all the time. It was very rare for this to actually be enacted. Not because it was rare that there was marital infidelity, but rather it was so explicit that you had to literally eyewitness, multiple eyewitness accounts, see the couple like in a particular act in order for them to be found guilty. Like that just was rare to happen. The fact that this woman is brought in and not the man, like they are clearly not operating with good intentions. And Jesus is asking them to consider, what are you doing here? Why are you unwilling to look and examine your own heart in life and instead are using this woman? And so, did you notice the response? I find it so interesting, so challenging, but also I think just so informative that Jesus tells them, all right, if you're without sin, go ahead and pick up the, the stone. Like, let's, How do we pursue righteousness and holiness, all of it? And yet, no one does. And they all walk away. But did you notice the detail? It started with the oldest. Now, I don't know why. It doesn't unpack it for us, why they walked away. It was the oldest one there, just like, dude, I'm tired of standing, and I got to get out of here. I don't know if it was, was that. But my guess is that the oldest had lived enough of life to have experienced the brokenness and the pain and the angst and was at that spot. Like I remember growing up and people, you know, being like, oh, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. I'm like, what, are you kidding me? No, not now. Christmas is just right around the corner and I got basketball games to play. This is gonna be terrible. What do you mean, right? And then each year that goes, by, like if he comes back this afternoon, amen. Like that's the reality of the situation. And yet there can be this tendency, I think the younger that we are, to even not fully, and this is not a slight Some of you are way younger than me and have experienced way more pain and heartache and you're fully dialed in to like, no, come Lord Jesus, come, like you get it. But there can be, if we're painting with a broad brush here, sometimes there can be a tendency to think like, oh, things aren't that bad or maybe things are bad out in the world, but we haven't seen ourselves screw up enough to even know like how broken we are. And so I think the oldest one leaves first because he's starting to be dialed into, oh man, Oh, my story. Oh, I'm, I'm broken. I'm a mess. And one by one, just think of the impact there. I, I would put before you that the calling for us, and we don't know where they ultimately go in this, but I do think it's a picture of repentance. There, Jesus is extending grace to them. He's giving them space. He's on the ground, writing in the, the sand. He's doing all of that. He's speaking these words to them so that they might consider 
their self-righteousness, that they might actually repent of that. And the man, the oldest one amongst them, walks away, followed by the next. To repent means to move in a new direction. To say, I've been pursuing this. God, I've been, I've been committing spiritual adultery by my pursuit of all these other things instead of seeking first your kingdom. And so very practically, you want to know what like, would be a great goal for you, for me, for us collectively as a church is to be known as like the lead repenters. To be able to say, like, I am broken. I'm in need of God's grace. I, I am not here as somebody that's like easy for Jesus to love. Like, I, man, it must be so much easier for Jesus to love me than all these other people running around. Like, I put Jesus on the cross. My brokenness, my, my rebellion, my spiritual adultery murdered Jesus, as did yours. Welcome to church, right? Like, that's the truth of the matter. It says they left one by one, starting with the older men. Would you be a lead repenter? Would you dial in enough to see the holiness, the majesty, the wonder of who Jesus is and realize I am in desperate need of the grace of God? It could be me, like this, this, it, you know, like this woman who was brought in and put for all to stare at and her shame. Like That's my story, apart from the grace of God. And so they begin to repent. There's grace for the religious, but there's also grace for the rebellious. Look with me at verses 10 to 11. And when Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. At no point does Jesus say, She's not in the wrong. At no point does he say this wasn't a big deal. In fact, by the end, the word is, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, go and sin no more. Like to leave, to repent, to move in an entirely new direction from the life that you have been living. But that only happens, it's fueled my understanding of the forgiveness and the grace of God. There were not a lot of great things that happened during the pandemic. But there was one great thing that happened during the pandemic. It's called Ted Lasso, all right? Um, now, you may not be familiar with this, and I also can't vouch for, don't watch it with your kids, all right? Um, it's a wonderful story, and I'll tell you a little bit about it if you're not familiar with it, um, and, but I can't vouch for all the language. If you're offended by it, email me at eric at C... No, I'm just kidding. So, um, uh, but in this story. Here's a quick summary if you're not familiar with it, okay? Is a, uh, Jason Sudeikis plays this guy named Ted Lasso. He's a football coach. He's an American football coach, all right? Um, he's coaching in Kansas, coaching a relatively obscure college football program, but he gets an invitation. He is hired by a professional English soccer team, all right? And so he flies across the pond, all right, and goes over there with his assistant coach to go and coach. Now, here's the crazy thing. He only knows American football. He knows nothing about the football that is known in the rest of the world, what we call soccer, right? He has no clue. He's literally like learning. He's reading the rule book on the plane, just trying to figure, figure it out. Like, so completely clueless. But he is also just, man, he's the person. I think this was the resonance, particularly in our cultural moment. Like, he was the person that we just needed during, during this time, all right? I mean, we need Jesus more. But Ted Lasso was, like, obviously, the, just this sort of character that was just full of, like, 
of hope and a winsomeness and a kindness and gentleness and seeing the best in people and unassuming and just everywhere he went, he's just winning people over. And the person he eventually begins to win over is the owner of the particular soccer team, this woman by the name of Rebecca. And we begin to learn her story that she's recently divorced. And the thing that her ex-husband loved more than anything was this soccer club, was this soccer team, this football team. And she thought, what would be better to deal with my bitterness and my hurt and my pain and my resentment than to slowly dismantle and destroy this thing that he revered? Because she got it in the divorce. And so she begins bit by bit to sabotage the team. One of the ways being, let me hire an American football coach who knows nothing about football or soccer, right? And so this begins to take place and she's going out of her way to do this. And then towards the end, all right, so now if you wanna walk out, spoiler alert, all right, but it's been out for a year, so you should be able to, all right. But anyway, like there's this particular scene and Rebecca, she's come to this point where she has been so well loved by Ted, the ways that he has cared for people, the ways that he's cared for the team, all the, the things that he's doing. He's, he's, he doesn't know anything about soccer. He's a terrible soccer coach, but he's able to tap into something of just rallying people around a cause, and it's this beautiful picture. And here's the dialogue that takes place later in the season. She busts into his office in this moment of confession. And I share this with you because there is a power that happens not only in confession, but in what we actually receive on the other end. And so she comes in and she says, Ted, I lied to you. I hired you because I wanted the team to lose. I wanted you to fail. And I sabotaged you every chance I've had. It was me who hired that photographer to take the photo of you and Keeley. I set up the interview with Trent Krim, hoping that he would humiliate you. And I instigated the transfer of Jamie Tart, not to be confused with Jamie Hart, all right? Anyway, even though you'd asked me not to. He said, this club is all that, and her ex-husband's name is Rupert, has ever cared about, and I wanted to destroy it, to cause him as much pain and suffering as he has caused me. And I didn't care who I used or who I hurt, and all you good people just trying to make a difference. And she begins crying. She's like, Ted, I am so sorry. And if you want to quit or call the press, I'll completely understand. And he, she had busted into his office. He's sitting at his desk. And he slowly gets up. And he walks around the desk. And he looks at this woman who's taller than him. And he looks into her eyes. And in what I think is one of the most powerful scenes in this comedy drama thing that I'm like, I shouldn't be crying right now, but man, there were just full on like tears when it happened. He looks her in the eye and he's like, I forgive you. And she is just floored. She is dumbfounded. She doesn't know, she has no categories for what has just taken place. And she's like, you, what, why? And he looks at her with so much empathy and he's like, divorce is hard. And it doesn't matter if you're the one leaving or if, or if you're the one who got left. It makes folks do crazy things. And I don't know the particulars of your situation or your story, but that, that need that we all have for forgiveness, for grace, for understanding, to have somebody, when we've messed up, to be able to look us in the eye and say, I forgive you. Now, at a cosmic level, in a much more profound way, in something that, though a TV show might bring us to tears, what should just floor us, where we should have a response of like, what, why, like this woman, who has condemned you? 
She's like, no one. And she says, Lord. She's beginning to understand who Jesus is. And then Jesus speaks these words to her, neither do I condemn you. I mean, it's absolutely flooring. It's not that she didn't do anything wrong. She actually deserved death. As do you. As do I. As every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth or will walk the face of the earth. We have rebelled against our God and our king. We have said, I will go and do my own thing. We have committed treason, spiritual adultery, whatever you want to call it. It is an offense to God. And it needs to be punished It needs to be dealt with. He would not be righteous and holy if he did not deal with it. And yet Jesus can speak these words to her. Neither do I condemn you. Why? Because he would be condemned in her place. That the stones of the wrath of God would be hurled at him instead of at her. That a crown of thorns that should have been placed on my head and your head and her head were put on him. That the flesh that was ripped off his back should have been ripped off of mine. That we should have been put on a cross. That we should have been crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should be dealing with eternal separation from God. And instead, Jesus did it. He was condemned in our place. This is why Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, and this is just glorious chapter. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. When there are those moments where the voice of the enemy reminds you, you messed up, you screwed up, you did this, you're not worthy to be loved, and speaks those words, and you start to feel the shame, and you start to feel the guilt. Romans 8, chapter 1, there's no condemnation. You can literally tell those words to go back to hell where they came from. That's the reality of the good news of Jesus. There's no condemnation. This is why Matthew Henry would say, Christ was without sin and might cast the first stone. But though none more severe than he against sin, for he is infinitely just and holy, but none more compassionate than he to sinners, for he is infinitely gracious and merciful. And this poor malefactor finds him so. This poor woman finds him so. Do you find him so? There's no condemnation. He looks you in the eye and he says, I forgive you. And he earns, he achieves that forgiveness for us by dying in our place. And the last thing then, he tells her, go. Go as a freed woman. Go with a declaration over you that you are, you are free. There's no condemnation. Not guilty. That's the declaration of the judge because of what Jesus has done. But he tells her to go and sin no more. Now, did Jesus expect from her perfection going forward? The moment you accepted Jesus into your life, it's like, okay, pressure's on now. Go and sin no more. No. Like, there's no way that that's going to happen until Jesus comes back and sets everything all right. But what he is telling her is like, there's a whole new way to live. There's a whole new way. Like, when you understand that you've been forgiven, that Jesus was condemned in your place, it frees you to live in a whole new way. There's a change that takes place in this woman's life, the owner of the team, when she is granted forgiveness. It changes things. And if that's true in human relationship, when our vertical relationship with God, when he says there's no condemnation, it literally changes everything. So not to bore you with grammar, but grammar matters in these moments. There's an order of grace that you see over and over again. And it's always this move from the indicative to the imperative. It means this. There's 
always throughout the scriptures. Here's the declaration of who you are. You're new, you're sons, you're daughters, you're made whole, you're righteous because of Christ. That's your new identity. And now in light of that, here's the imperative. Here's the commands. Here's the way to live. We are so burdened because we get it so messed up. We flip it. Here's the command. If I obey, if I do this, then maybe I'll have this standing. It'll never happen. It's always, here's who you are, now live in light. Colossians chapter three, we'll close with this. This is where you see this play out. Therefore, here's your identity. Here's the indicative. Here's the reality. As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved. That's what he's calling you, holy and dearly loved. In light of that, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. And above all, put on love. Be clothed in love, which is the perfect bond of unity. May we be a church that lives this out. We understand so profoundly who we are that we've been forgiven, that we extend love and mercy and grace because at the end of the day, there's justice and holiness and righteousness that was achieved. That's what Jesus did and he died and he perfectly satisfied the wrath of God. All of that so that now we can live in this way. We won't do it perfectly and we just keep running back to the grace that is offered to us. So I wanna give us a moment to respond. We're gonna respond through singing together. There's opportunities to give. We're gonna participate in this meal together. But would you take a moment, I'm gonna pray for us to repent to remember the story, let's rejoice together as the worship team comes back up while we sing this song. If you're a follower of Christ, come up and get the elements, the communion elements, and bring them back to your seat. If you're gathered with us at home and you are a follower of Christ, you can get the elements there. And after this song, I'll invite us to come. And we're gonna participate in this meal and we are gonna remember and we are gonna rejoice and we're gonna feast upon this means of God's grace that he's given to us and be reminded that we are part of the family. We have a seat at the table. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your work of grace in the life of the religiously lost and those that are rebellious or anywhere in between. God, we thank you that because of the work of Christ, the words of there is no condemnation, a verdict of not guilty is declared over us. And so we give you praise for that. I pray that you would help us to live in light of that that we would love and we would forgive in the ways that we have been so radically loved and forgiven, that we'd show kindness and grace and humility, make us into those kinds of people. May we be lead repenters. So even now, Holy Spirit, as part of your grace and your kindness toward us, lead us in repentance, reveal the areas of our lives where we have run after and we've pursued other lovers, other things that we've put ahead of you. And then may we remember your grace and rejoice in it. We thank you for your love. Thank you for your pursuit. God, as we worship and celebrate this story, as we celebrate you, I pray, God, that you would get your glory and that we would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.